I'd like to begin this morning with a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. We notice in this prophecy of Isaiah, that he says, Unto us a particular people, not unto the world in general, but unto us. A child is born. Now he wrote this about 700 years before it actually took place. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son, not a daughter, but a son. Okay, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is simply pointing us to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, etc. And then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And most time we quote this and we like to look at the names where he shall be called Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, and all those are wonderful names. But I want to center this morning on the expression, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now the shoulder uh, is a part of the body that we use oftentimes to move or carry heavy objects, heavier than maybe we want to pick up with our hands or even carry in our arms. And so you put it on your shoulder to help carry it from point A to point B. We see illustrations of this throughout the scriptures. We look over in the book of Genesis where Hagar was going to be separated from Abraham and Sarah, but before she left, we find where Abraham gave her some food and also a pitcher of water that she put on her shoulder to carry it. In Genesis 24, we find where Abraham has sent his eldest servant to go to, back to the land of their kindred to get a bride for his son Isaac. And when he gets there, he's prayed ahead of time, and the Lord answers that prayer exactly as he prayed it. And he prayed that he might be met by a woman carrying a pitcher of water. So they would carry this on their shoulder. It's mentioned several times in this chapter. Uh, we find the Lord told his disciples, when he said, I have desired to eat the Passover supper with you, he says, you go into the city, and you'll see a man bearing a pitcher of water. And that's how he'd be carrying He'd be carrying on his shoulder again because the shoulder enables you to carry things heavier than you normally would want to carry in any other way. Uh, when Israel crossed Jordan's River, we find where Joshua appointed 12 men, one out of every tribe, to pick up a stone out of the midst of Jordan and carry it to the other side as a memorial. And he says you to carry it on your shoulder. So these were not just little rocks. These were great big stones, uh, large enough they'd be able to stack them when he got to the other side, and therefore they put them on their shoulder to bring them out. Uh, interesting picture of Samson found in the book of Judges. When Samson was in a house and the Philistines came, they were going to try to get him. And the Bible says that at midnight, Samson just arose, and he went out of the gate into the city, and he got the gates, bars, and all, and just put them on his shoulder <laughs> and carried them out. Of course, Samson had superhuman strength. He had strength unlike any other man, but he still needed to put these on his shoulder, you see. Now, we read where the priest had two onyx stones uh, that they placed on their shoulder. Now, they didn't place them on their shoulder this time because they were too heavy to carry. But on these two onyx stones were six names of the nation of Israel, tribes of Israel on this stone, and six on this stone. And this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ because on, they had a breastplate as well. 
and they had all 12 stones, one stone for every tribe on the breastplate. And we see then that the breastplate covered the heart and we find that the two onyx stones were carried on the shoulders and that's what Jesus did for us. He took our sins in his own body to the tree of the cross. He was able to shoulder them, so to speak, and carry them. But his motivation was the love that he had for them right here in his heart. Now here, well, one other thing we find in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7, where the apostle John is writing to the church at Philadelphia. And he says, Thus saith he that is true, he said, It hath the key of David, and openeth no man can shut, and he shuts, and no man can open. And he's quoting from Isaiah 22, 22, where he says, concerning a servant there of Elikim, he says, I will lay the key of David upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and no man can shut, and he shall shut, and no man can open. That's what a key does. A key locks, a key unlocks. And so he's had, had a, a historical setting, but it's pointing, obviously, to the Lord Jesus Christ way over here in uh, Revelation 3 and 7. So we see the different types of usages, you might say, where the shoulder would come into play. But here he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder. There's going to be something heavier on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than two stones. There's going to be something heavier on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than a stone that comes out of Jordan's river. Something heavier is going to be on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than a gate that Samson carried out. Now that was, that was heavy. And I'm sure no other man on this earth would have had the power and the strength to carry the gate and the bars of, of that entrance into the city out of there on his shoulder apart from Samson. But I'm talking about something greater than that. I'm talking about a government. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. A government that I could not possibly bear on my shoulder and you couldn't bear on your shoulder, but the Lord Jesus Christ was able to do so. Now, we back up to the 33rd chapter in the 22nd verse, and we find where Isaiah, speaking to the Lord, said, He is our judge, spelled with a capital J. He is our lawgiver, spelled with a capital L. And he is our king, spelled with a capital K. He says, now, he is our judge. He's our lawgiver. He is our king. He will save us. Now, I found in fathers, uh, when they were trying to establish this country and set it up from a governmental point of view, I don't know if they read this text or not. Uh, I don't know where they got actually the idea of the three branches of government. You got the executive branch, that's the president, the legislative branch, that's your senators and House of Representatives, and they make the laws. And then we find the, uh, the judicial branch, which interprets the laws. We got three branches of government in the United States of America. The thing about our government, though, is it doesn't always work like it ought to work. But it's supposed to present a balance of powers so that no one man or group of men would be able to, you know, exercise dominion and power in an unjust manner, an unjust way. And very seldom, though, do our people in Congress work together. Very seldom are they on the same page. We have been divided in this nation. Our ideology uh, differs from you know, one group and another group. And there's very little cooperation, very little support. And that's why we have gridlock. That's why we get very little, if anything, done anymore uh, because of man. But I can assure you that the government in heaven works differently than that. 
In the book of 1 John 5, 7, John says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are the same mind, same purpose, and they're never, they never differ. They're never, uh, one is never against the other. They're always in perfect unity and perfect harmony. That's why the Lord spake like he did on several occasions, but John 6, 38 and 39, he says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. He's saying here, my will and the will of my Father are one. They're together. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I know my sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. So the Trinity, the Godhead, is in perfect unity and harmony in everything that's done. Same purpose, uh, whatever it might be, same will, same purpose, same good pleasure, etc. So we have perfect unity in heaven, in the government of heaven, do we not? But let's notice again what Isaiah tells us here. He says, for he, talking about God, he is our judge, he's our lawgiver, and he is our king. He will save us. Let's take a look at him as the judge. Now, over in the book of Genesis, we find Genesis 18, where God reveals unto Abraham that he is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were wicked and evil in the sight of God. They practiced what the Bible calls sodomy, which present day we're talking about homosexuality. And so this had come up before God to the point where he's going to destroy these two cities. And Abraham has got a nephew the name of Lot that's in those cities. And Abraham speaks to the Lord. He says, if you find 50 righteous in the city, he says, will you spare the city? And the Lord says, if I find 50, I will. He says, how about 45? Yes. 40, yes. 30, yes. 20, yes. He brings it all the way down to 10. Lord, if you find 10 righteous in the city, will you spare the city? The Lord said, if I find 10 righteous in that city, those cities, I'll spare them. Now, he didn't find 10 righteous in the cities, so he's going to end up destroying both those cities with fire and brimstone. But the Lord... Uh, well, uh, Abraham speaks to the Lord and says this to him. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a question. But the question has an implied answer, doesn't it? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. He can do nothing but right. He can do nothing less than right. The judge, notice this, of all the earth shall do right. Now, judges, you know, have certain jurisdictions. And they judge, you know, in that jurisdiction. What is God's jurisdiction? The whole world. He's the judge of all the world. And he will do right. In Revelation 19 and 11, we find where heaven is open. And John saw one riding upon a white horse whose name was Just and True, spelled with a capital J and capital T. He says, who judgeth righteously. So the one we're talking about judges righteously. Now, in contrast to that, you know, in Luke chapter 18, there's a widow woman that comes before a judge that the Bible calls him an unjust judge who didn't regard God nor man. 
Now, God's not an unjust judge like this judge. God is a just judge. God is a judge that will do right. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul says, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course, and henceforth there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, and not only for me, but for all those who love his appearing, whom the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give at that day. Once again, we find the Lord pictured as a judge here. He's pictured as a righteous judge, a judge that can do no wrong, will always make the right judgment in everything you see. All right, he's, he's a judge of righteousness. Now, we look over here in the last verse of the last two verses, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you see, before I go any further, a lot of God's people don't like to hear about God being a judge. They don't like that. All they want to hear about is God being a God of love. God of love. Well, I'm so thankful that there is a God of love in heaven who loved his people. But he is pictured and brought to our attention as a judge in many different places, old and new. Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, uh, verse 21, we find where Paul is responding to those who have made idols uh, of different things. And, uh, you know, he says, our God that we worship is not, a, uh, the Godhead is not like unto gold and to silver. But he says, in times past, uh, God winked at this ignorance. He says, but he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world. And he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained. And has given assurance unto all men that he raised him from the dead. The fact that God raised his son from the dead is the assurance that he will judge the world at a day appointed by that man whom he hath ordained, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we go to Ecclesiastes 12 and the last two verses. And Ecclesiastes is a book that we all ought to read somewhat regularly. Uh, Solomon wrote three books. He wrote the book of Proverbs, which is a book, obviously, of 31 chapters of wise sayings. He wrote the Song of Solomon, eight chapters of a beautiful love letter uh, there. And it's some of the most beautiful language in the Bible and in the entire world. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon had more money. He was one of the wealthiest men who've ever lived upon the face of this earth. Uh, he had riches beyond that which could be counted. And yet he writes the book of Ecclesiastes and his entire message themed throughout the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes is that everything in this life and this world is nothing but vanity. Yea, vanity, which means nothing. Uh, all his wealth did not bring him happiness. His horses, his chariots, his gold, his silver, the, his 700 wives, obviously he wasn't happy. You know, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, and he's got 700 of them. But anyways, you can imagine what he was going through. But anyhow, he wasn't a happy man. And his focus was off. His uh, direction was off. His, you know, he, he wasn't looking to the Lord for his peace and his happiness. And so this entire book is along those lines. But he comes to the end of it. He says, now this is the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the bottom line right here. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, uh, it is the responsibility of every man to fear God and do his commandments. He said, for God shall bring every work into judgment, yea, even every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So we're before the God who's the judge of all the earth 
who will do right, and he will bring every work, every work, good work, evil work, wicked work, uh, dead work, no matter what kind of work we're talking about, God will bring it into judgment. Even every secret thing, secret to men, but not secret to God, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, that's why we can read in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, these words of Paul. He said, Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he soweth to the flesh, he shall of the flesh reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That means the blessings, spiritual blessings, uh, that God has in store for his children who are spiritual, who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. So here we have the conflict between the flesh and the spirit and everything we say and everything we do is like seed being sown in this field or that field. Now the Bible teaches clearly that everything we sow will come up. There will be a reaping. There will be a day that we reap. And everything we sow in this life will be reaped in this life. Okay? And everything you sow in this field will come up in this field. You will not sow wheat and reap corn. If you sow peas, you'll reap peas. If you sow corn, you reap corn. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. So the reason that principle can be there is because God's a judge of all the earth. Now let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're getting about 7 or 8. And Paul is telling us here that to be a present with the body is to be absent from the Lord. To be absent from the Lord, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says, therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. He says, now, we must, all, therefore, he says, whether we whether in the present, while we live, or after that, he says, we shall, we desire to be, do that which is acceptable in the sight of God. And he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we shall reap those things which are done, again, whether it be evil or whether it be good. So God looks and God judges. Now, the truth of God's word, and the fact that God is a judge, is not meant to frighten God's people. It's not meant to cause you to be frightened and afraid, but it is meant for you to understand this, that God is a God of his word, and God means business. And God is a judge of all things, and we should have a reverential respect for God every single day. Here's the next verse. He says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord. The word terror there means reverence, it means respect. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says, I want men to understand that God is the judge of all the earth. And whatsoever we do in body or whatever is going to be judged whether it's good or whether it is evil. So we have a timely judgment of this judge here. Now, we look over here in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, 4 verse 1. And Paul says to Timothy, I charge thee therefore... Before the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Now, the Lord made one appearing 2,000 years ago when he appeared here and lived for 33 and a half years, made an offering of sacrifice that was accepted of the Father, and put away the sins of the family of God. He's appearing now on the right hand of God, making intercession for us. But there's a third appearing that we're looking forward to. Hebrews 9, 28 says, Now unto those that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When he comes the second time and appears without sin unto salvation, we find that he shall judge the quick, which means the living. He shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. 
When the Lord comes again the second time, there is going to be a judgment. Now, Paul is uh, before Festus and Agrippa over here in the last part of Acts. I believe it's chapter 24. And he is standing before them because of his belief and stand on the resurrection of the dead. But he says, there shall be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. When the resurrection takes place, the just will be resurrected and the unjust shall be resurrected. The Lord made reference to this in John chapter 5 in verse 28 and 29. He says, marvel not at this. Now, what he's talking about in the marvel not is in verse 25. He said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the uh, hour is coming now as when the dead, that's the dead in sin, trespassed in sin, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear, they shall live. Now, it's the voice of the Son of God, not the words of the Son of God. There's a big difference between the two. It's the voice of the Son of God. Every person that's been born the Spirit of God was born the Spirit because they heard the voice of the Son of God, not the words of the Son of God, not the voice of the preacher, not the voice of mother, voice of daddy, or brother, sister, husband, wife, son, daughter, it doesn't matter. Just one voice is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a life-giving voice when Christ speaks life like he did to Lazarus when he called him out of the grave. Now, that's verse 25. He comes to verse 28. He says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, future, when they're in the graves shall hear his voice. Again, what's go, what is he going to take to get the body out of the grave? Preacher going to get you out of the grave? <laughs> Any other man going to get you out of the grave? I don't think so. It's going to take the same power to get you out of the grave that it took to get you out of a state of sin, death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ, a regeneration. Same voice. For the hour is coming when they are in the graves. Now we're talking about the bodies of people who've already passed this scene of life and the body has been buried. They which are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And they've done good to the resurrection of life. They've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Now, a lot of people, uh, you know, they get a little upset or you might say concerned about what is taught concerning a great white throne judgment. I want to take your, bring your attention to this in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read this to you. I want you to fully understand this. We read over here in verse 10 of chapter 20. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now this is the last reference to the devil you have in the Bible. And we find here where he is being cast into the lake of fire, of fire and brimstone. And in that lake of fire and brimstone, he says, it's the false prophet and the beast. And they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It will never end. The torment will never end. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now let's get the picture here. Here's a great white throne. Here's somebody sitting upon the throne. And before him is described the dead, small and great, out of every category, out of every classification, out of every age, out of every nation, et cetera, et cetera, out of all humanity are now before him. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books, plural, 
were open. And we're not told what the books were. I got a feeling it's perhaps the 66 books that's before me here this morning that makes up the Bible. But nevertheless, it may be the books of remembrance. There's different books taught in the Word of God. It might be the book of remembrance that God has written. And another book was opened. That's one book, singular, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which was written in the books according to their works. Now, when it comes to the salvation of sinners, what does the Bible say about that? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is given us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness which we've done. Now I want you to notice, he says which we have done. They had done works of righteousness. And what are works of righteousness? Preaching the gospel is a work of righteousness. Uh, giving testimony and witnessing to others, that's a work of righteousness. Baptism is a work of righteousness. Repentance is a work of righteousness. So forth and so on. But he says, it's not more works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. He says, he hath saved us. For by grace are you saved. That's got an E-D at the end of the word. That means that is a past, completed, perfect action it's, the Lord did not make people savable. He saved them from their sins. So if they've been saved legally from their sins, how are they going to be judged in this judgment I'm talking about here? Those who are judged in this judgment I'm talking about here are judged according to their works. The Lord's family is not judged according to their works. They're judged according to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the doctrine of representation is such an important doctrine in the Bible. When you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to the end of that chapter, you're going to read about the doctrine of representation. You're going to have Adam, and you're going to have the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam represented the entire human race. 1 Corinthians 5, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. you got somebody in Adam, you got somebody in Christ. And everybody in Adam is not in Christ. So as in Adam all died, not died with a D on the end of it. Now that's true, they did when he transgressed the law, but this is just D-I-E. For as in Adam all die. You know, that's, I've maybe told you this before, but that's one reason I've never been interested in any kind of diet because it starts off D-I-E. And then you throw a T on the end of it. For as in Adam all die. Even so, in Christ shall they all be made alive. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says concerning Christ, For he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What's that saying is this? When Christ died upon the cross, he made an offering for sin. He took our sins, his own body, to the tree of the cross, and our sins were transferred to him, imputed to him charged to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the sin debt. He shed his blood. He purged you from your sins. He put your sins as far away as the east is from the west. He put your sins behind his back. He cast your sins in the very depths of the sea, so forth and so on. And therefore the sin debt has been taken care of, has been paid, and therefore the debt has been cleared. Okay? Now his righteousness was imputed to you. 
to the family of God, charged to you. His righteousness that was charged to us did not come to us based upon our merit, our works. I can assure you, you cannot love him strong enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't work long enough to be able to get the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to you based upon your own efforts, your own works, and your own merits. I got, I got a feeling there's going to be some nervous people at this time. And nervous from this standpoint. When it comes right down, if you're really convinced that you, your life's going to be judged according to God in the great white throne judgment, and God's going to say one way or the other, heaven or hell for you, it's going to be based upon your works, I got a feeling some people will be a little bit nervous. I got, I got a feeling some people are going to think, well, I've tried to cross my T's, I've tried to dot my I's, I've tried to live a good life, I've tried to minister, I've tried to give, I've tried to help people every opportunity I can. I've tried to live an honest life and a truthful life and a, live a life of integrity. But I'm telling you, I wonder if I've done enough. wonder if I've done enough. That brings bondage, brethren. That brings bondage to the child of God. I'm telling you, you couldn't do enough. If it's based on that, I know where you're going. <laughs> now, let's finish reading this. He saw the dead small and great. Stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. The dead, under consideration here, of those who are dead in trespass sin, they've never been made alive in Christ. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Forget about the thousand year thing right for the time being. He says those who have part in the first resurrection, he says... They are blessed. Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection on which the second death, which is the lake of fire, hath no power. So who has part in the first resurrection? I can give you at least eight different examples in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where people were raised back from the dead. But in every case, those that were raised back from the dead died again, okay? But there's one resurrection when that didn't happen. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said, I got power to lay down my life. I got power to take it again. And he laid it down on Calvary. His body was taken down, put into a barred tomb of Joseph Arimathea. And then 72 hours later, he arose from the grave. He arose by his own power, never to die again. And he died a representative death. He was buried a representative burial. And he arose a representative resurrection. And those who have part in the first resurrection, the second death, hath no power, hath no authority on you. But it has on somebody. Let's finish reading the last verse. Let's read the last two again. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Read Matthew chapter 25. We find in verse 31 where it speaks about the king coming in his glory. And he shall be like a shepherd, divide his sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. 
And he'll say to the sheep, Come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says, For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. He says, uh, When I was in prison, you visited me. And you know what they said? They said, When do we do these things? They weren't keeping a tab. They weren't keeping an account. They weren't keeping a record. Yes, they had done these things because the Spirit of God dwelt in them and they knew this was just the right thing to do to help people when people are in need, to feed the hungry and feed the thirsty and those who are uh, down on their luck, so to speak, uh, and down uh, in the valley of despair. And we reach out and we help them. We don't do that to be patted on the back. It's just the right thing to do, right? But he put look to the goats on the left-hand side. Now remember, he's the one who made the separation. This is, a, this is a, a declaration of separation right here, of identification and separation. He identifies his sheep from the goats, and he separates the sheep from the goats over here. Now obviously when I talk about the sheep, I'm talking about the people of God. And when I talk about the goats, I'm talking about the wicked and the evil here of this world. He says to the wicked and to the evil, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And he says, they shall go away into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You got everlasting fire, the second death, brethren. The lake of fire and brimstone has been prepared for the devil and his angels and the wicked and the evil. They have done evil in this world. I'm talking about live the life, continuously of evil. That's where their resting place. Well, let me rephrase that. And no resting place for them, a resting place for the Lord's people. But anyway, this is our final place of abode. The great white throne judgment is real, but it's not to frighten you. It's not to make you afraid. Why? Because you're securing Christ. Christ lived your life. Christ crossed your T's. Christ dotted your eyes. That's why I'm in love with the grace of God. That's why I love to preach the grace of God. That's why I love to hear the grace of God preached. That's why I love to read about the grace of God. I never get tired of studying about the grace of God. Because outside God's wonderful, marvelous, amazing grace, there's no hope for sinners. But I'm telling you, God's people have a hope that's real. It's like the anchor of the soul is sure, and it's steadfast. They know by studying the Word of God that if they're God's child, they belong to God based upon His sovereign grace, based upon His electing grace, and His dying grace, redeeming grace, justifying grace. And one day they'll be on the right hand of God up there, my friends, that's His sheep. And they'll be praising, glorifying the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't forget how you got in Christ. <laughs> if you got in Christ by your works, you can get out by your works. <laughs> but you didn't get in Christ by your works, brethren. You got in Christ based upon the sovereign pleasure of a sovereign God. He is our judge. He is our lawgiver. Yes, indeed. Uh, he's the one who has given the law. He gave uh, you know, he gave a law, a commandment to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He said, you can eat of every tree of the garden except one. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, Adam understood that clearly. He was accountable. He was responsible. He ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sin came to the world. Death passed, uh, sin came as a result of that. And death passed upon all men for all his sinned. And it required a great warrior, a great uh, powerful God to come down here and rescue us after the law of sin and death. He gave Israel the law of Mount Sinai, did he not? He gave him the ceremonial law. He gave him the governmental law. 
and he gave them, uh, you know, the moral law from outside out. He is our lawgiver, but there's a government in the, in the Lord's church, in the gospel church. There's a government, and I'm telling you, our Lord is our judge. He's our lawgiver, and thank God he's our king. Let's focus upon that for just a few minutes. In the Old Testament day, he was prophesied to come as a king. I want you to know some of the scriptures of our Savior as king. In Isaiah 32, 1, he says, Behold, a king shall reign. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. He judges in righteousness. As king, he's a king that reigns in righteousness. And princes shall rule in judgment. And a man, talking about this king that's reigning in righteousness, shall be uh, as a hiding place from the wind. Aren't you glad as you face the adversities of life, when you face the opposition and the winds of adversity uh, uh, here in this world of trials and tribulations, that there's a man that's a hiding place for you? Aren't you glad when the tempests come and the storms of life that he's a, a covert for you, a covering and a place of protection? Aren't you glad in this world where there's nothing will satisfy the thirst of a, of a child of God, Jesus Christ comes along and says, I'm up as rivers of water in a dry place. Aren't you glad in this weary land in which we live, he is he's a great rock in which we find we can get in the shadow of this great rock. That's some of the most beautiful language in all the word of God. Reach your arms around it. Hold on to it. Embrace it. Don't let it escape your mind. I'm telling you, he's a man that is a hiding place from the wind. He's a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. King shall reign in righteousness. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 said, Rejoice, O Jerusalem, and shout, O Zion, for thy king cometh. This king belongs to you. Thy king cometh. He comes riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. He's just and lowly and having salvation. Notice the picture of our king here. It's kind of different than the typical kings of man, isn't he not? He comes riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. He's just, he's lowly, and he has salvation with him. Now, he's the one that's got salvation, nobody else. <laughs> and this is fulfilled, you read about in Luke chapter 19, when he comes riding into Jerusalem, and there's no dignitary waiting for him. There's no Pilate, no Herod. There's no chief priests, scribes, or elders, but just little children before him cutting down the palm branches and putting them before the Savior as he come riding, comes riding in on a poor man's travel. He didn't come riding in a great white horse or some fabulous golden chariot. He comes riding upon that ass, the coat, the fold of an ass. And the common people rejoiced and heard him gladly. Behold, thy king cometh. <laughs> Shout, O Zion, and rejoice, O Jerusalem. He's talking about you in the gospel day here, in the gospel church. You got something to shout about. You got something to be happy about. You've got a king. <laughs> Look here in um, Psalms 24, I believe it is. In Psalms 24, the writer tells us, he says, open ye the gate, you everlasting, uh, everlasting door, open ye the doors, you everlasting gates, and the king of glory shall come in. He says, who is this king of glory? And he tells you who he is. He says, he's great, and he's mighty, and he's mighty in battle. I want you to know when Christ came into this world, yeah, he came to teach, he came to preach and do miracles, but he came as a mighty warrior. Our Lord came to do battle, and the battle in the opposition was the devil himself and Satan. And well, I'm telling you, he represented us in that, did he not? He destroyed him. He had the power of death. That is the devil. And he destroyed him through death. 
He came as a mighty man, as a mighty warrior to come to do battle. That's who the king of glory is. And then he asked the question one more time. Who is this king of glory? He says he's the Lord of hosts. That expression, Lord of hosts, is found in the Old Testament. First of all, it has reference to creation itself. The host of creation, all the sun, the moon, and all the stars that's up there. Have you tried to count the stars lately? I'm sure you gave up after a little while. Have you counted the sand by the seashore lately? I'm sure you gave up after a little while. Have you comprehended the dust of the earth? I'm sure you gave up after a little while. Well, God can count the, the stars in heaven. He can count the sand by the seashore. He can comprehend the dust of this earth. Can he not? He is the Lord of hosts. And he was the Lord of hosts of the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. But thank God there's another host that John says no man can number. He's talking about the elect of God, the family of God, the children of God, the bride of Christ. He is the Lord of hosts. And it's a mighty host that no man can number. I'm telling you what, um, I'd, I'd come to church every day if you would. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? I want you, to, I want you to know there's a king of glory. King of glory described in Revelation 19 as Lord of lords and king of kings. I'm telling you, we're in good hands, brethren. We're in good hands today, are we not? I'm telling you, the government's in great shape in heaven. God's government's in great shape because he's our judge. He's our lawgiver. And he is our king. He will save us.